Hey there, I'm Edwina Kennedy, registered pediatric dietitian and mom of two, and this is the My Little Eater podcast. Each week, I'll be dishing out all the best info on feeding and nutrition for your baby and toddler, answering all of your what do I do when scenarios, and helping you gain complete confidence in not only feeding your child, but in parenting as well. Every episode is filled with actionable and proven feeding strategies delivered by a mama and a feeding expert who's been there and done that. I hold your hand and I take you step-by-step through all stages of feeding while showing you how to implement what I teach you so that you can raise a happy and healthy little eater of your own. Let's do this. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the My Little Eater podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Heidi Miller. She is a speech-language pathologist who has been practicing speech for 20 years, and she is also the author of the HMS Feeding Therapy Protocol for Expanding Repertoire of Picky Eaters and Children with ARFID. And if you don't know what ARFID is, we may get into it into this podcast, but um, for now, just know that she is definitely a specialist in extreme picky eating. And uh, she also has a guide to teach SL, or sorry, this program is also a guide to teach SLPs and OTs how to effectively treat picky eaters by creating a safe environment for them to confidently learn to eat new foods. She is married with three children, which helps her understand a parent's perspective Additionally, the stresses of a busy household are not lost on her. She can totally relate and empathize with the concern every parent has for their child, and her direct and honest approach will guide your family through every step of growth. So welcome to the podcast, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you here. I know you have the expertise that a lot of us are looking for. We want to definitely deep dive into the topic of food chaining today. But before we do, would love for you to kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you particularly got started in this field and what drew you to kind of the feeding therapy world to start with. Certainly. I was very fortunate in that when I got out of my master's degree in Florida, I was placed in a private, in an externship in a private clinic under somebody who loved feeding. So right off the bat, I was in the NICU, I was in the hospital, and I was taking on private feeding clients as an extern there. And then they hired me. So my interest in feeding therapy peaked very, very early in my career. And I continued with that. So that just allowed for me very early on to start to take all of those feeding trainings that became available, such as, you know, the SOS approach, which is wonderful by Kay Toomey. Um, I continued on with a lot of the talk tools work, which helps with the feeding stuff a lot of times. And then I went into private practice. I've been in a hospital setting. I've been in a school setting. And I just sort of When you find that niche that you really love, you tend to do your continuing education with those things. And I took a lot of different courses and then you have all your tools in your toolbox and you create the program that seems to work for you. And that's what I did. That's amazing. And so grateful to have people like you, you know, have the deep expertise to help families who are struggling with extreme picky eating um, and with tons of sensory issues and and mechanical issues and so many issues around feeding. I was just actually speaking to Heidi before we started recording and we were saying that, well, I was telling her that in Nova Scotia, so that's the, for all of you Americans that are listening, that's on the East coast of Canada in the Atlantic provinces, we actually don't have 
any private feeding clinics. We don't have anybody actually east of Montreal. And so it's extremely, extremely hard to get the support we need locally in person. So even just having an online resource like Heidi and, you know, the information that you put out online is so, so helpful to all of us. So I really, really want to dig into the concept of food chaining today. It is something that I talk about in my uh, Feeding Toddlers online course. I have used that approach with a lot of families that I work with, but I think what would be amazing is to really get your perspective, the in-depth perspective and teachings to explain this concept to parents at home who, again, maybe don't have the ability to work with somebody one-on-one at the moment, but maybe they can take this concept and start to apply it at home with their own child. So why don't we start with what is food chaining? Certainly, we can absolutely start there. So food chaining is a method that works very well when you have a child that is more on the sensory idea where their feeding problems um, or challenges come into play with sensory. The other piece of feeding that I also happen to be an oral facial myologist, the certified oral facial myologist. So there we really look at the mechanics. That was years of training too. So somebody that has a really disorganized oral phase or really mechanical problems, we have to use other approaches. So I do want to be clear there, but back to the food chaining. If you have a child who let's say has a preference for a certain flavor, like they have a limited repertoire, they only eat a couple of foods, but their parents say, you know what? They love cinnamon graham crackers, for example. Then I would say to that mom, okay, let's think of other things we might be able to put cinnamon on because we're going to chain that flavor. Meaning the child already has the preference for the cinnamon. So by taking that cinnamon flavor, the child already feels safe with that flavor. When we're thinking about children and stress and anxiety around food, what we what our main goal is as a, as a therapist, as a parent, as somebody feeding that child is for that child to feel safe, for that child to feel in control. So by sharing a flavor that's preferred, we're going to have higher success. So then we look at, I, as a speech therapist, I'd look at the oral mechanics. Okay. I think that that child would do well with something, let's say like a cinnamon toast stick. See now, and this is where you would come in because a dietitian might say, you know what, looking at the whole repertoire, I don't think that calorically that's going to benefit them or nutritionally that's going to benefit them. As a speech therapist, we don't have the credentials to be able to make those determinations, which is why working on a team is so critical. But from a food chaining perspective only, I would say, why don't we try cinnamon toast sticks? Is that something in the repertoire? The family could decide. And if it's not, it might be something nice to introduce because the cinnamon toast stick is similar to the cinnamon graham cracker, only it's obviously softer. It's not as crunchy. It doesn't melt as easily there. We have to discuss those things too. But from a chaining standpoint, it might be easier. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a really great explanation. So essentially we're taking something your child loves Right. We're looking at the properties of it. So whether it be, like you said, the flavor that they love, but it could also be like the color, right? Like the general texture, like if it's a mushy food or a crunchy food or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Yes. And then, and then kind of changing that. Certainly. So somebody like the SOS approach definitely goes a lot with color. Color works well with sort of the ASD population. 
I tend to go more around flavor and around like what the actual food is. For me personally, that tends to be more successful. So that's kind of the avenue that I go. Okay. Love Um, that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So what I want to ask you next is, do you recommend starting food chaining after you've already kind of solved some minor problems or issues with regards to picky eating? Like for example, to kind of be a little bit more detailed, what I always would look at is, okay, well, are you implementing the division of responsibility first? Do you have a feeding schedule in place? Like, do you have some suggestions as to when in their kind of feeding therapy protocol, if you will, they would start, you know, implementing food chaining or can it just be started at any point in time? So that's an excellent question, actually. And the division of responsibility is critical because for the younger kids, it has been proven that the more exposures they get to varieties of foods, that does help with expansion of palate. So it's our responsibility as parents and as caregivers to set when mealtimes are, to set what the schedule is, to have rules such as, you know, you're going to come to the table and sit as a family for X amount of time, depending on the age of the children and what the expectation would be and to present the food. But it is the child's responsibility how much food is going to be sent to the belly. And we cannot force the child. We can present this food and we can explain properties of the food like, oh, honey, these are banana muffins. You've eaten bananas before. The banana muffins are going to be soft in your mouth. They're going to feel a little sweet. We even put some chocolate chips on it. We know you like chocolate chips, you know, and then we present it. We do not force it. We do not... And we can certainly encourage movement through different stages like, you know, are you interested in breaking it to feel how it feels in your fingers? Are you interested in giving it a kiss? I guess if the family has like a real struggle with some of those other things in place, like coming to the table and just having success of sitting at a family meal, getting electronics away from the table, it might not be a bad idea to do that. For me, I find that when families come to me, they're so like ready to go, you know, they want to move, move, move that I generally do pair it with starting with some of those foods. But one thing I always do is have the families bring foods that the kids do feel successful with too, because I want to be able to say to the child, look how amazing. I'm so, I can't believe how well you ate that veggie stick. It's so incredible that you can eat an apple stick. I have so many friends that apple sticks are so hard to eat. So you want to build the confidence of the child from day one. Oh, that's such a great point to really, really get them feeling like this is a place I want to be. She's complimenting me. This is positive. It's not all like too, too difficult that really it would, it would drive them away and make things so much harder for them. Exactly. You're never going for the second that it starts to be too, too difficult. You're pulling back. And that's why it's a, it's a slow process. And I'll have that. Like the child could be in therapy for two weeks and the parent will come in the third week and be like, I don't know. We went to a restaurant and I, I, he didn't want to order the salmon. And I'm like, really? He didn't want to order the salmon after three 30 minute sessions when he hasn't eaten for four years. Like it takes time, you know, we have to let them work through slowly where they feel safe. 
Yeah. Another great point. I often hear that as well. I think that of course, because the frustration is so high. The oh, I understand high. it as a parent. Trust me. Yeah. I'm not, we're I'm like, not oh, anybody, I just, oh no. And I know you're not process. It is. But that's kind of what I like to say too, is I'm like, let's think about how long it took for your child to get to this point. Right. You know, it could have taken years for these preferences to develop or this behavior to develop or this fear or whatever. It's going to possibly take years to kind of come out of it. That's not to say you won't see little wins, like small steps forward in the meantime, but the like change that most of us are hoping for, usually we need to wait a little longer for that. And you made a great point because every positive interaction is a win. Every one of them. And when we can celebrate those small wins with the kids, it makes a huge difference. Look, my daughter doesn't love strawberries. I mean, I um, this is what I do. I teach people from literally all over to eat. And I have a daughter who doesn't love strawberries. So I blended the strawberries. I put them in an ice tray. I put neon straws on and I'm having her lick the ice pop. You know, I mean, in my own home, it, it, it happens. So she, the other day, you know, at first she started where she only did one lick. Now she's up to 10 licks and I'm rewarding her for 10 licks of a strawberry ice pop. I mean, and I am very proud of her, you know, and I have my husband. He's like, you get other kids to eat strawberries. Why aren't you getting her to eat strawberries? I'm like, this is a step in the right direction. And we have to be proud of her for this. You know, every step is a step. And it's not just about eating the food. It is about those steps in between. I have this visual thing. I can give it to you and you can post it somewhere if you want. I'm happy to so that people could have access to it. It's very similar to Kate Toomey's, but I kind of broke it down a little bit where it shows images of just having the child hold the food, kiss the food, lick the food, you know, bite into the food. I'll sometimes let me see your teeth marks, you know, mm-hmm. where you're not saying to them, eat it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, we're talking about exploring. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so important. Love this topic. I feel like it's my favorite topic to talk about with toddler eating is how to get them to interact with the food without making it feel like they need to eat it. And it just becomes their idea to want to investigate a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until they finally get to the place where again, we're happy as parents. So, okay. I have a few questions that kind of came up in my mind as you were speaking. One is, would you ever, maybe depending on the age, I don't know, explain to your child hey, this is what we're going to be doing again. Because I think you said something like, oh, you like bananas. I think when you were describing the banana muffin, Uh you know, would you ever say you like bananas? So I made you this banana cookie or something, you know, um, and it's a similar, like, I don't know, would you ever explain this process to them? Or do you suggest kind of just serving the food, not making even any talk around it? Uh, You know what? Very honestly, I go both ways. Like something like the banana muffin or the banana cookie, I might say, oh, you like bananas. Mommy thought that you might like to try these muffins. And I even put some chocolate in it and then put it there and, you know, see. But there there are times that I've made macaroni and cheese and poured in squash soup and served it because they love macaroni and cheese. And what's the point of saying there's squash in there? Because I'm not necessarily tricking them. They like macaroni and cheese. And if they eat it, they eat it. And then it's like, oh, you like the new recipe that mommy used, you know? So I think it goes, but that really is more for the younger kids. Um, With the older kids, I give them much, much more control. And I don't love to be sneaky, you know? But I think with the younger kids making a new recipe of mac and cheese, we don't pass what, you know, typically families, like when a 
parent is cooking or a caregiver or a, we don't say, oh, we're using this, you know, we found this yeah. recipe and, you know, we're cooking this way tonight. So I don't think it's not. So I think that you, you sort of feel it out. A little bit of each. Okay. That's, that's helpful. And then I guess maybe a, a follow-up to that. Does it help the older kids to know that, you know, because I like one property of this, I may like this more? Like, does it open up their perspective, I suppose, to the situation by that, explaining that? Or have you found, again, no real difference? No, I I do believe so. And like, you know, that's where I use words like safe and, you know, mm-hmm. like you might feel safe with this food. You know, mm-hmm. you enjoy this flavor. This flavor is comfortable to you or you enjoy this texture. This texture feels comfortable to you. In my experience, having worked with so many kids, expanding repertoire, sometimes when a child will eat this, they'll like this. Are you willing to try that? You know, Um, so yes, as the kids get older, having those cognitive conversations, I think are very important. Amazing. Okay, great. So my next question is, let's say somebody wants to kind of start this at home. What do you recommend, like what food I suppose would you recommend they start with? Do they have to do some kind of food audit or any kind of analysis or do they just pick any random food that their child likes and then just start tweaking from there? You know, my only concern with something like that is I think that they really sort of have to tease out, is their child a little picky or are they a true problem feeder? Because, you know, If their child is a little picky, then sure, like we can use some strategies, we can try some of the chaining, we can, you know, I'm certainly happy to explain some things they can do. If the child is a a true problem feeder, then there could be a host of things going on. As a speech therapist, I look at is there some kind of a oral motor problem going on? Is there, you know, possibly tethered oral tissue, which doesn't allow them to pair the food well in their mouth? Is there something, I look at the tonsils. I mean, doctors, MDs often are, they're looking for pathology, which is critical, clearly very, very important. You know, like something like a well visit, they don't have so much time. They they, they don't have as much time always to explore for like overall function, you know, and they're looking for like real stuff, not that this isn't real stuff, but they're looking for pathology. They're looking for, so like if you have really big tonsils, but they're not getting infected, then very often we're not necessarily going to do anything about those. But if you have really big tonsils and you have a child that's not eating and is snoring, That's a very big problem because the pharyngeal space is occluded. The child could have like a choky coffee feeling every time they swallow. Of course, they're not going to want to swallow. Then, of course, the GI stuff. If you have a child that you don't know has underlying GI problems and they're eating and they're having discomfort, they're going to stop eating. So it's a little tricky to say, you know, can a parent just start these things? If there's like a mild bit of pickiness, then 100%. But -hmm. if there is more of a problem feeder kind of thing, if it moves more into like a dietitian standpoint with, um, I guess, like growth and weight, and then I do think you need to reach out to those providers. Like I've had somebody, some people come to my office and I check everything off and I'm like, you know what? They did so well. Go try it yourself and then call me if you have a problem. Yeah. Like people aren't looking to take on people if it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Or I'll say, you know, go to go directly to the ENT. I think that let them assess the tonsils and then we can like circle back or so. And then if it is a tethered oral tissue problem, 
people will think, oh, well, we get the frenulectomy and everything's okay. No, we have to retrain the muscles and teach the child how to actually chew and eat because they weren't able to form the bolus. So it's a little bit more complex than that. Does oh, that make sure. sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. And you know what? Um, for anyone listening that hasn't, I'm trying to think of what blog post it was that I posted. I'm going to have to link it in the show notes, but it's basically titled the difference between or maybe it's, oh my goodness, I have to remember it. When your picky eater goes from normal picky eating to problem problem eater Perfect. or something like that. Excellent. So if you're kind of interested or you're worried or you're concerned, you know what? I don't know if this is the run of the mill picky eater type behavior, or if there's something more serious going on, check that out. And then of course, always, I always refer if you or talk to your doctor, I should say to refer you to a speech language pathologist, an OT, somebody qualified as a feeding therapist to be able to look at your child and the underlying issues, as you said, that are going on because so often, you know, there are tips on Instagram. I've said this many times before. You can get a tip from me. You can get a tip from somebody else, you know, and they're all great and helpful. But until you kind of know what you're dealing with, especially if you're moving into like an actual problem eater type situation or extreme picky eating, you may have to solve, again, these mechanical issues, these serious aversions, these sensory type issues, whatever it is that is the underlying problem for your child's picky eating needs to be resolved first before you'll even see the other stuff works. So that is very, very true. So let's just say, I guess, to help parents understand a little bit more of, again, what really happens in this food chaining concept. If we were to maybe, can we go through maybe a couple scenarios, like some foods and kind of a step-by-step manner, how would you get them there? So let's start with Chicken nuggets. So chicken nuggets. child, I feel like this is common, right? Child's yep. like hooked on this one brand and that's all they all want to have. So if we're doing a food chaining with chicken nuggets, that's perfect. Very often kids will come in, they eat chicken nuggets. One thing that a lot of times I'll say, if the child absolutely does not want to move to another brand, I say to the parents, start changing the presentation of the chicken nugget. In other words, sometimes give it whole, sometimes cut it in half, sometimes cut it in cubes. And if they really are hesitant with that, then start putting it on different plates. You want to be changing the presentation, even of the things that they are used to eating, because that in and of itself helps changing the presentation is going to help to sort of change the sensory system. Then what you do is you do try to move on to another brand that's very similar. Then a lot of times what I like to recommend is I like like the stick chicken nugget as a next movement, because for me with chewing lateral, it's a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And then I like to move on to like a chicken Milanese, a homemade chicken Milanese. Um, I'll ask parents to flatten, like hammer the chicken cutlet. So it's a little thinner, but then kind of slice it so that they look sort of chicken cutlets shape. Mm -hmm. And then I always have them bake the nuggets. um, And they can just do like an olive oil lemon and do the breadcrumbs or make it however they typically do with egg or whatever. Um, But that for a child with oral mechanical problems, that's going to be a little tougher. But for a sensory child, that's going to, you know, sort of be our next real step because chicken Milanese is something that you can get in almost any restaurant. And that's also going to resemble a chicken nugget that they're going to get at a restaurant. Now, if a child likes ketchup or condiments, those are always going to help as well, because that could be another chainer. So if the child likes ketchup, then you're in luck because that's going to sort of help you propel. Yeah. So you mean it's going to almost mask some of the 
changes that maybe they wouldn't accept without that familiar, you know, catch up on there. Right. right. Well, it's going to do a couple of things. It's going to one, be a familiar flavor, like we were sort of talking about with the cinnamon. It's going to chew from an oral mechanical standpoint, almost make that bolus like the ball of food a little more slippery and easier to go down. So and then it's going to add that familiarity. So that's why it's beneficial. Yeah. But if the kid doesn't eat ketchup, then don't add ketchup because that's going to be yet a second thing. Yes, for sure. Okay, so I guess my last question for you then is how do you know when you can move a child on to the next step? So again, maybe you cut it in little tiny pieces and maybe like let's assume they're not like perfectly happy with it. Maybe they're kind of like, oh, I don't want this. I don't, uh," you know, they might be kind of hesitant. They eat a little bit, but they don't eat all of it. Is that enough to warrant moving on to the next step? Yes. So usually when they are eating it, then you want to increase quantity. And also I tell parents, okay, so you go to therapy, you bring the second chicken nugget with the therapist, the therapist, you know, is able to have your child take, let's say five bites of that second chicken nugget. I mean, we do not give them that new chicken nugget the next night for dinner. It does not work that way. You know, you have to sort of wait. What you could do is give them three or four of their preferred and put that other chicken nugget in a ramekin nearby and say, you know what, this is what you worked on yesterday. And, you know, if you want to taste it, you can, but you don't just then offer it to them. You do sort of need to get to a place that it's a little bit more integrated. But yeah, I would say when they're eating sort of two and then they're sort of practicing it at home and then you increase it and then you can move on to the next. For me in therapy, I actually do multiple foods at one time. I don't only work on one food because I don't have, you know, I feel like we got to go. But, you know, so I'm always sort of adjusting and pulling back and throwing away and adding more. So, yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. That's, oh, do you have anything to add there? Well, I was going to say, ironically, there is one food that so many of my picky eaters like, and that would be bacon. I, I still mm-hmm. to this day don't understand. <laughs> oh, I understand. <laughs> I know it's not healthy. You might not be happy with but it. That's so good. But it's <laughs> one food that I don't know, almost all of them I can get to eat. It's funny. I have no clue. Wow. Okay. So there you go. Might make the mood a little bit better. If you have a little bit of bacon at the table. <laughs> That's awesome advice. Um, okay. So can you just let us know how we can learn a little bit more about you and some of the, again, content and work that you do? Certainly. So I have an Instagram, HMS Feeding and Speech. You can feel free to reach out to me there. You could also feel free to DM me. I'm, you know, I love what I do. I'm happy to help people. I'm happy to point you in the right direction. And then I have a website, HeidiMillerSpeech.com, where you would find the protocol if your speech therapist or occupational therapist is interested in feeding. Um, They can purchase it. It is a step-by-step way of helping them teach the feeding. And I am going to be doing a talk tools lecture on July 15th, where I'm teaching about feeding. So I'm around and I'm happy to help. So awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and for giving us all this great information. Thank you for having me. 